0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Citizens moving about their daily lives are also generating lots of data. Governments at all levels can use that data to improve the digital services they offer, especially when the data is gathered and analyzed locally. In information technology terms, that means edge computing. For more on what appears to be a growing trend, IDC Government Insights Research Director, Sean McCarthy. Sean, good to have you back. I'm good to be here. And you're bringing together in a paper you have written a lot of strains here. One, the use of edge computing as -hmm. opposed to the data center or the cloud. The fact of all this data generated locally by IoT devices, including people's cell phones, geospatial and citizen services. So tie it all together for us.
2: (laughs) Sure. Well, a lot of people first heard of edge computing when they looked at the old retail with the branch office in every, uh, you know, every department store or somebody like Akamai, who had locations around the country to help stream all sorts of data, including media and that. But in reality, edge has become so much more, it's become down almost to the block by block gathering of data that you see in smart cities. And as part of that, there are some new types of edge computing that are happening. They could be right at the edge, right down to the 5G tower, or a telephone pole located near an intersection, those types of things, collecting data. Or it could be a hyperlocal, which is all the way down to people's cable boxes in their houses. And it could be on your mobile device. And there's a number of edge computing capabilities there, some of which do the processing right on your device. Others gather data from your mobile device and offload it to some sort of edge location that might be near where you are. And there's many different industry applications for that. But in government, what we're seeing is kind of a blending of third parties And government data that create all sorts of different solutions that people can tap into and see what the government has collected and how it is affecting them and in turn, how they can affect it by being part of the data collection process.
1: Now, government has a two edged sword here because it has to be highly mindful of privacy concerns And Mm -hmm. the fact that they need to keep this data secure and so forth and anonymized. So how do they best go about getting data that could help deploy services in such a way that's not creepy to people?
2: Well, with any sort of data collection, there should be the opt-in options. And government tends to go for that because they want to avoid the very privacy concerns that you're talking about. You see it in other data collection services too, but obviously sometimes that's buried in the fine prints, you know, six screens down and people don't realize that. But government is doing so. For instance, they, uh, they exchange a lot of data with Waze in order to help people understand what's going on with incidents, road closures, understanding what's happening in relation to events and that. So when you have your Waze, you know, fired up on your phone, there is a lot of government data that is actually being collected there. So that brings us into another realm, which we call mobile crowdsourcing, where people opt in for gathering data on their mobile device and sharing it with whomever, whether it's other users, whether it's with the government, whether it's integrating government data and using that to kind of become an edge-enabled service, edge-enabled citizen, uh, I like to call it. So another great example, the FCC speed test. You can download their app, and as you're walking around with it, the speed test is auto sampling bandwidth, all sorts of other details besides just bandwidth, the the level of connectivity people are getting. And it helps them create maps that are much more fine of a grain of detail than what you would see when you just, you know, log on to a site and say, oh, there's a cell tower in this area. It accounts for shadows of hills and buildings and all sorts of stuff.
1: And you're seeing, I guess, a lot of this Organic growth in applications of this data happening at the state and local government level, correct?
2: Yes. What's interesting is while most, I mean, the old saying is all data is local, data is where you collect it, but there's layers of that, and so you start with the sensors that gathers the data, it sends it to some device, whether it's your mobile device or an edge computing, you know, capability that exists in a city, and then above that, what you have is these mobile crowd sensing participants that are helping both gather the data on their mobile device and then sharing it with the edge server, because ultimately it becomes a national picture of local data. I mean, a great model to look at would be weather forecasting, obviously. Not only do I want to know what the temperature and wind speed is at my house, I want to know what's happening five miles from me and heading my way or 20 miles from me. And that type of picture can be created for all sorts of data sources. So you have your local view and you have your national map that is generated from that and then edge enabled citizens get notifications back to their phone based on the larger national picture that's created with their assistance.
1: We're speaking with Sean McCarthy, Research Director at IDC Government Insights. And what are some possible federal applications of this? You mentioned weather, which is something that the government provides commercially and personally. I mean, the National Weather Source is the source of all of the weather service advisories for the most part. That could change with companies like Blue Origin and so forth. But right now, the government kind of has a monopoly on that. But it seems like the government could reconstitute data from its own sources, but also from commercial sources and maybe offer applications and digital services.
2: This is something the edge enabled citizen is something government has a huge hand in, but really can't do alone. And it's nice to see these public sector private partnerships that help create this. One of the huge ones being undertaken now is autonomous vehicles, you know, communication between vehicles. You see that in China, you don't really see it in any sort of large way here but communication between the vehicle and infrastructure and simply notifications going to the citizen as they're driving around about everything from traffic to danger to emergency situations of all types that they might want to avoid. And government is playing a key role in helping coordinate the autonomous vehicle effort. So that's one. You know, something like the FCC speed test that we talked about was one too. And those types of things can be really leveraged in a lot of different ways. And we're seeing other folks, we have, we have alerts that will alert you based on your location. Amber Alert is certainly one of those that's been around for a long time, but the ability to drill down for all sorts of things is becoming very fine-grained. So looking into the GovPilot, GovAlert sort of applications is good. FEMA has some applications that will help them get to citizens in areas where everything has been destroyed, including maybe cell towers, you know, so they can pop up a temporary cell tower. People with the FEMA app, they can download it, and they can see all sorts of things about where to get food, where to get shelter, all sorts of things. So the government has a key role to play in this edge enabled citizen effort. Yes.
1: Yeah, so it's a two way street. In other words, the data yes. is flowing in both directions and it's yeah, kind yeah. of gathered. So in both directions.
2: It, it, I think of it like a, like a three legged stool that makes it work. You've got the government with a huge amount of data and the ability to notify people of things. You've got the citizen and then you've got the app developers who obviously are key
1: players, too. And you mentioned this. I'll read this statement from the paper, to, and it's long. To succeed, governments need to build or tap into existing multidimensional context-aware social network architectures. And the IEEE has some documents about this. So it's becoming a almost an engineering field.
2: It is. It is an area that is evolving rapidly. You tend to have to rely on these full-stack developers – because there's so many different pieces, they need to understand the back end, the front end, how things are gathered. And the interesting things about apps is the automated data collection and distribution is two-way. So it's not just you collecting data and sharing it with somebody and you never see it again, nor is it just getting you know data that you would like if you're reading Google News or something. It is very much a two-way element. And a good chunk of that data that you are seeing comes from the government and is shared with the government with your permission in theory.
1: And just briefly tell us what you mean by the concept of digital twin at the edge. (laughs) So
2: digital twin is used to manage, think of a building. You can look at line items reporting on everything in that building from light switches to heating systems or whatever. A digital twin basically takes a graphic interface and lays it over there. So when you're looking at a report about your building, the heating and air conditioning, it's kind of icon driven or it's uh, schematic driven. So you click on various devices get reports on them, see what's overheating, see what needs attention, et cetera. And digital twins are used in a lot of things, including a lot in the military, you know, full renderings of airplanes or rockets or things like that. So you can click in and get the information you want in a graphic way. So again, that digital twin concept can be used all the way up to all sorts of different edge devices. And basically you have a way of interacting with that data where you're not just typing line item type of things.
1: So it sounds like agencies need to get onto this trend and maybe look at what some of their sister agencies like FEMA, FCC that you mentioned are doing.
2: Absolutely. Granted, you may not see the need for this for every agency. Not sure exactly what the play might be for Department of Education, but Department of Energy, anything to do with the interior, all sorts of different agencies could definitely use this, you know, both the mobile crowdsourcing piece and just, you know, edge enabling citizens in general. It's an exciting time to watch this.
1: Sean McCarthy is research director at IDC Government Insights, as always, thanks so much.
2: Absolutely. Good to talk
1: with you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
3: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration. And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
0: And thank you so much for having
3: me. Look
0: forward to the conversation.
3: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
0: uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward.
3: <laughs> Perfect.
0: that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead, and there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide. In terms of race in america is and but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh to help close that divide so there have been so many defining moments uh, uh in my career i i will tell you even uh after the murder of george floyd and my role at the u.s Cha- chamber of commerce uh to galvanize the business community uh inspired by that tragedy
3: It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them?
0: You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, it's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King.
3: Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. um, What comes to mind there?
0: Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk no matter rain, sleet, or snow,
3: And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
0: But well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
3: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.
0: Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com
2: vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely.